Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Poetry has the power to save lives. It can unite us, heal us, challenge us, transform us. Honeybell Bay knows that words are life and uses them as a lifeline to help others find the words they need to save themselves. Honey is the Poet Laureate of Cuyahoga County, a National Poet Laureate Fellow, and Founder and Director of the Distinguished Gentleman of Spoken Word. She holds a BA in Broadcast Production Technology from Bethune-Cookman University. She's here to talk about how a poet can give you power over emotional trauma. Honey, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, honey, when did you first discover the power of poetry? I want to know about that little girl that you were that found poetry as as your lifeline. That's a great starter question. I have been telling the story a lot lately about uh, the first time that I fell in love with poetry. And I was a little person. And actually now doing the workshop series that I'm doing, I've gone back and gathered all of the journals, the poetry journals I've ever had I still have now to this day and the youngest entry is in crayon um she's probably eight and she's telling her story and putting her emotions down so I think I never lost touch with the freedom that I felt in being able to write and then secondarily I've always had educators who supported that writing and actually now working with young people I've bumped into many of these teachers who are either still teaching or retired now. And so I've always known the passion behind the writing or the necessity to write, like you have to do it. And then I've always been supported once I was in school and trying to formulate those ideas. Teachers always wrote notes in the margins, keep writing, honey. And so I knew I had a voice and they gave me the push to be able to use it. It's so important to hear that kind of encouragement along the way, you know, from, from teachers to, to feed that, uh, that energy within you. Absolutely. You have a beautiful poem called Lost and Found. It's one of my favorites of yours. And I don't know if you know it by memory at all, but I love it starts with every little black girl needs to take a trip to the lost and found. To look through the boxes marked rejected, abandoned, promiscuous. And if she's too strong, she needs to look through the box marked arrogant or which pronounced with a B. All of that weave and all those naps. I just love the idea of opening up the box of kind of who you are. And there's one line you say, every little black girl needs to remind herself that she is the prize. And I wonder, how did you first learn kind of you were a prize? You were that prize. I think um, writing kind of gave me a lot of the freedom for that. That is odd that you picked that particular piece to talk to start talking about. Uh, Many of the subjects I talk about in that piece, I lived. So I had to go through the whole snake journey, the ebb and flow of not knowing who I was and to discovering this passion of how I can inspire other people through writing. And so the proof was in the joy and the transformation in my own life that poetry gave me kind of in an organic, unintentional way. So if you would have told me, even lost and found, that I was sitting writing that for a reason other than this is my journal entry. So there's probably very few poems I've ever written in my life that I sat down with the intent to write a poem. I sat down with the intent to be free from whatever emotion I was feeling, whatever darkness at the time. 
and it was simply a poetic journal entry. And now I have the freedom to share those journal entries with, um, with others. And I love how you end that poem, that idea of sharing with others. Every little black girl who stumbled like me along the way, take a trip to the lost and found. And when you find it, you leave a path for another black girl. And when she finds it, she'll leave a path for another black girl. And you go on and on. And I love that idea that you're not just saving you, you're helping the next person, help the next person, help the next person. It, it, it has such power in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm blessed in that way because someone set that journey and that path for me. So I think it's my opportunity, like the poem says, you go to the lost and found and whatever you've lost within yourself, open some boxes and see if you find you in there. But along the way, you make sure you leave enough in those boxes to help someone else find their way when they find themselves lost. And that's not black or white. That's all of us. We hit that journey in life, every single human. And that's what I love too. Your writing is so universal. It really touches that universal heart of any race, religion, age, even gender, the idea of your self-worth and finding that prize of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can you talk a little bit about your childhood? You grew up in poverty. Things were a little bumpy in your house. Your dad wasn't around. Not real sure about your mom, but it sounds like you were kind of on your own with your writing. I think, uh, yeah, writing was definitely freedom. When it comes to poverty, it's interesting no one knows they're in poverty. It's just the reality of the world you're in. So it was a normal, normalized for me, which makes me now the. I am grateful that I had some of the experience I have. It makes me appreciate the experiences that I have now or that I create for others because it was just what life was. The darkness didn't come from poverty at all because you didn't know you were in poverty. You had the basic things that you needed the darkness came from those lonely moments or the pieces you speak of, of having an absent father. And even then, it wasn't until I got to college, really, that I knew that there was something wrong with that. So I just seemed, no one on my street had a father. So it just seemed, this is just life. I'll never forget the first day moving into the dorms by myself and people's dads were carrying uh, comforters and uh, trunks and and care packages. And I'm thinking, where are the, all these men going? They were going into the dorms to make up their kids' beds. And I'm thinking, well, people have fathers. But again, kids are coming from all over the country, from all these different socioeconomic backgrounds. And then at that moment, I knew the loneliness of broken families and different families and that everyone doesn't live the same. And so, yeah. That's really powerful, honey. Um, the idea of how you can kind of get used to a life a certain way. But then when you go and take your life into the rest of the world, you see the differences. And, and sometimes it's good. And sometimes it's kind of sad and tragic to kind of see what you haven't had, those losses. Yeah, it is. But I think hopefully what you do with those dark moments, you figure out what can I do with this darkness and make light for someone else. So when I give care packages out to kids going off to school every year, I do this. It is because I remember that first day going to school of not having there was nobody to carry anything if he had been around because I didn't have anything going so but it makes me make sure the young people in my space you will never know that feeling ever not of that first day not of that first semester not of those first letters and that support because that was just such a very hard dark time so you were on your own quite a bit you graduated from Shaw High School 94 you left Cleveland for a college in Florida that's a long way to go by yourself was anybody like a big support for you 
Now I was going to just keep running until I hit water. And then I figured <laughs> <laughs> once I ran from Ohio to got, you know, reached all the way to Florida, I would, you know, just stop. I had some support systems for sure, but it was about navigating and making my own world at that point, whatever that was. And, uh, finding my poetic voice, my voice in social service and my happy voice. And I certainly, I didn't have that leaving, um, leaving Cleveland. So you were in Florida, you pursued ministry also. Tell us a little bit about that faith aspect of your life. You've done some research. (laughs) You know, you've got such a fascinating life. I I spent hours just reading about you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I think more than not, the sorrow and brokenness at that time, I definitely wasn't raised in church, but I needed something so far away. And ministry seemed like a good conclusion for that. So I became a licensed ordained minister. The good part about that is my faith formalization was there, but I missed a lot of the things that young people did in school. So there were no pep rallies. There was just church, ministry, radio stations, all things dealing with church. And I would definitely caution a young person who's going into ministry to have a balance with that. I didn't have that balance. And so I gave up the college campus lifestyle to pursue ministry. And I don't regret that. I just would balance that better. That makes sense. And then for a while you left Florida, went to work on the Olympics in Atlanta, but you were like sleeping in your car. You didn't really have like a support system around you there either. No. Again, if, uh, you know, these dreams that you have, these huge dreams you have in life, one of my huge dreams is to make sure I always have a respite home of some sort for kids who are in between living situations or families or foster care, and you have nowhere to go home to after the Christmas breaks or the summer breaks and the dorms close. And I found myself in that type of situation. Wow. So you've really lived so many different kind of sorrows in in ways that you could really leave breadcrumbs for the next person. I mean, your poems are like that, a little bit of a compass for people. Yes. But at the end of that, like with the piece you mentioned about Atlanta, I learned about resiliency at a level that, you know, I could write several books about. When it came down to living in Atlanta, it was the difference of, I'm going to work for the 1996 Olympics I have that opportunity. I have the skill set to run audio and to run camera. I just have nowhere to live. That's a small thing. I'm going to drive to Atlanta and live in my car. And at the end of the Olympics, they'll give me a contract and then I'll pay for school for the next semester. It made all the logical sense in the world. (laughs) Atlanta has the martyr train system. There's restrooms there. I did my research. I would be fine. Park your car at Denny's or Walmart or wherever had the most light and you'd be okay. And I was willing to take that chance to compete with audio and camera technicians from across the country who were all bidding for these jobs to work for ACOG, Atlanta Commission of Olympic Games. I wanted it. So if I wanted it bad enough, everything else was small. Wow. Talk about resilience and courage. That's pretty powerful to know what you're up against and still choose it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I want to talk a little bit about a poem you wrote, I Rest My Case. Another one I just love. It's just so powerful, the idea of, and you perform it in a courtroom. I, I, on your website, I saw you standing in court and you're putting your case before, uh, I don't know, God, your honor. And I love that you want to file a grievance on yourself. Can I tell the judge that I was the one stealing my own spiritual wealth? 
Can I really file a grievance on me? When you say spiritual wealth, what does that mean to you, honey? It's such a beautiful concept. I think it's the very, very foundation of like who you are, that you're the one who, who you're working against, who spirit, who you naturally, you are intended to be. You're coming against yourself because you haven't found balance between the things you couldn't control, what happened to you, and the things that you're trying to balance and live through now. And so many cases that becomes self-indulgence, it becomes depression, because all, all these things that just eat, 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 because you haven't stopped to say, wait a minute, I'm killing me in the process of trying to live and not remember the things that once hurt me. You talk about being guilty as charged of the spiritual disregard. I, I love that spiritual disregard, because sometimes we look at like, okay, I'm not eating enough, or I'm not sleeping enough, but to look at it as a spiritual disregard, like goes really deep into the core, I think. Yes, absolutely. So how do you stop doing that? How, how do you um, take that spiritual wealth and like really feel it and believe in your own spiritual wealth? Like, how have you done that? Believed in you? I think it becomes almost, there's a lot of my poetry becomes visual and I paint it. And sometimes I ask myself, what was this canvas originally supposed to look like? If there was no blemish, if nothing had ever tarnished her, hurt her, broke her heart, abandoned her, neglected her, what was it supposed to look like? And then I I will be, I'll be darned if I am the person who's helping to destroy that canvas. Enough of life outside of my control did enough of a job of that. So to disregard that, and I'm going to take this canvas that God made, I don't even belong to me. This canvas originally, it was beautiful. And all these things happened. And so I'm going to, I'm going to add some more destruction to it. That doesn't make sense to me. I needed to stop, honey, stop. And what feeds your spirit? What feeds your soul? What has damaged it? And let's pull away from the things that have damaged it. And that's a process. So it's not overnight, but committing to a process of loving me more than the pain and the past is the journey I'm on even now. Yeah, I could listen to just this last couple of minutes every morning to fire me up to love myself better. Um, The last line in your poem, you say, there's no way in hell that I'm going to live another day not loving me. Wow. That's a real vow, like a real commitment to self. Yeah. Do you, do you kind of make that vow every day? Wow. You know, you're, you're, you're putting me right on the spot. (laughs) Listen, you're, you're saying it and I haven't, you know, listen to that poem in, in quite a while. So I'm like, right. But you know, you're so right. The repetition of hearing even your own words or hearing you even read that sometimes just with life, you forget or you get knocked off. But the important thing is to, to get back up, to get back up and to keep, you know, fighting through whatever those pieces are. But one declaration, the last line of the poem, it is correct. I refuse to pay any more into the debt of depression and sorrow. I've already, I've overpaid that account. They should send me a check back. And so I'm going going to pursue, you know, joy and happiness at all costs because I paid a heavy price on the other side already. That's done. I'm not paying anymore. I love that. That is so powerful. Well, we're already at the halfway mark. I want to pause and thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to my guest, Honey Bell Bay. I know you have many podcast choices and I'm really grateful you chose to listen to mine. You have so many beautiful poems and and we'll mention your website at the end here. You are also appointed Poet Laureate of Cuyahoga County, the first one in 16 years. 
I know it doesn't come with pay, but wow, the power and the kind of presence you have in the community to lift people up. What did it mean for you to become Poet Laureate? I don't know. I think, and I'm 40, or my early 40s, 44 now, but I would think when I get to the end of my life, it'll probably be, I don't know, I haven't been asked that question. It will probably be one of the things I will carry with one of the happiest moments of my life because it was something on a city level that they weren't necessarily going to get behind at all, the concept or the necessity of it. On a personal level, to have any title that Dr. Maya Angelou carried in any way to be a person, I have no MFA, there's no Masters of Fine Arts behind me, and to still with just my survival grassroots poetry to be able to impact lives, you I don't know. You just look back and you question the impact of your life. What have you done? It meant that. I know that's around. It just meant this is the impact of my life wrapped up into one moment. And, you know, it was just validating what you do already, what you've done for 20 years, because that's innately who you are. Well, honey, you have done so much. I love that you created the Distinguished Gentleman of Spoken Word. You took them to Paris. I mean, you transform the lives of young people with poetry. Tell us for you what that's what that's meant to you to to look at those kids you at six years old, seven year old, pint sized poets. You know, you're sharing uh, "Still I Rise" with them. You're taking these people, all these little youths out there in the world, and you're giving them this great gift. Again, it just didn't seem like anything foreign. It didn't seem intentional. It just seemed like innate, just being who you naturally are. I think I've, I told somebody before, uh, there's just a few things in life I've never really tried to be. I've never tried to be Black, never tried to be a woman, and I've never tried to be a poet. Those are all things that just innately were who I am. And so when it came to young people, it just seemed natural. How do I have something that I know transform me and not give it to you? That's like holding on to food and someone's hungry in your space. How can you do that? So it seemed innate and that they bit it and ate from it and still continue to eat from it. It seemed like um, just the obvious transition. Well, a lot of poets tend to just write poetry and kind of do it in their isolation. You know, they sort of hold up in their little hermitage and write and get or published and maybe do readings. But you're out there in the community. You're really using poetry in activism and uh, to combat social injustice and to fight for equity. You're, You're using it like... I don't want to say like a club, more like a sword. A tool. Yeah, I mean, it's a real tool here. And, and you're not just, how would I say, you're not just writing for you. You really are writing for others, but also helping them find the poet within themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the latest project I'm working on is to help everyone recognize that they're a poet. And if you can talk, you're a poet. If you can write, you're a poet. If you can do even if you're every single person, every human is a poet. And I think that helps people not put this whole big daunting, the poets are trying to have the language and the form of poetry. We're not asking for a bunch of Shakespearean writers to be birthed. We're asking people to touch what's touched them and give it to the world. And maybe the world will be touched by it too. So you really believe there's a poet in everybody. I think that's Everyone. pretty profound. Everyone. Wow. Every single person, any age, any race, Everyone. So who are your favorite poets that you read just to feed your soul, honey, that you love just when you like at the end of the day, you're putting your feet up, lighting a candle, you take out some poetry. Who do you read? I read my students' works probably more than anyone I do because their stories fascinate me. They're pieces of resiliency and hope. 
uh, the things that they send me. But my favorite poem on earth is Sympathy by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And so Paul Lawrence Dunbar was the first African-American poet to really gain fame. And he died young. He had a very tragic life. I've visited his home, which still stands and looks exactly how he left it. And so Sympathy, because it talks about this caged bird, is my favorite poem. I can hear it every day for the rest of my life and it's still not get old. So it's one of those reminder poems of who you are and to break free. That sounds beautiful. When I get off of this interview, I'm going to go read it. <laughs> you also read um, or encourage people to read Harlem by Langston Hughes, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. You have a lot of kind of like your collection of people that speak to you. Langston Hughes is the poet for my students, my distinguished gentlemen particularly, because Hughes coined maybe five, six poems all about dreams. So mm -hmm. dreams was a running theme throughout so many of his pieces. And so if I can point them to what happens to this dream deferred, does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Does it sag like a heavy load or does your real dreams explode? If I can really point them to never letting go of what you want, the notion of this, what happens to this grape that was once a grape and it shrivels up and become a raisin. What kid couldn't see that visually? How you have to hold on and capture that dream right there because when it's gone, it's gone. And so, yeah, I use Hughes, especially because of the his constant pointing to holding to your dreams and not letting go. One of my favorites of his is, I wish the rent was heaven sent. It's that right. simple, but it's just that eloquence of to take something that's a struggle, but, but to put a beauty with words around it. And yeah. to kind of lift it up. It kind of elevates what you're going through. Absolutely. So I heard that you do not watch television. Is that still true? That is very true. That so is very tell me true. about that. Most people like it. They just want to go zoom out and uh, escape in the TV. Why did you choose not to watch? It's just so much else to do. And so I just couldn't imagine, you know, I guess now I will enjoy a movie here or there on one of the movie platforms on my phone. I mean, I don't even have a television. It's just, <laughs> I don't even, so there's not even one there. Um, wow. It's just, there's so much. So I read my news. I go to CNN. I look at the different you know pieces and, and get my news sources. But it's just, I can't lose. I have such a limited time here on earth. The notion that I, my form of relaxation is going to be sitting in front of this tube for hours on hours. I just couldn't imagine that. For me, that just doesn't do it for me. There's so many other things to create and go and do. And even when I try to force myself if I'm on vacation and there's a TV, you know, in the room, <laughs> I'm quickly like, okay, honey, shouldn't you be doing something else? <laughs> it just doesn't capture my time like that. That is beautiful. I remember a friend of mine, Sarah Willis, she said she gave away her TV and that's when she wrote her first book. Oh, wow. Gave her the time to do it. Wow. So you're making me... Uh, Turn uh, turn away from that TV a little more, honey. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your sister, Sugar. You've been really close to her. She's a twin. You're, you're twins. Sugar's my twin. She's my roommate. I call her my roommate and my womb-mate, both. Uh, and so Sugar is, um, I always call her the good twin because she's just such a compassionate, beautiful person. I'm also her guardian at the same time, which makes it a different a relationship. Um, she's very child lights so and she doesn't drive or touch a stove or any of those pieces 
but she's just a good person. And she joined me in one of my poetry pieces recently with a poem that she had written and said, you know, she thought it was very Dr. Seuss-like and not going to be good, but it was really excellent. And because it was just a few short lines, but the the pieces that she wrote about in this piece were about finding peace in sleep. And so most of the women in attendance were saying, oh, she's telling us that we need to rest. <laughs> I said, exactly. So Sugar's profound in her own way, for sure. Well, I love how you have such compassion for her and there's a tenderness that she brings to your life and that you share her with others. You know, yes. sometimes we're all about the people that are the big successes in the way the world measures it, but she has such a loving heart. And I think that maybe kind of shapes some of your writing too, to have that kind of roommate, so to speak, like you call her. Yes, I think um, she's she's the one who's more tender with me or putting up with my chaotic schedule or life or even sometimes temperament with trying to get so many things done. And she doesn't really navigate in those spaces or emotions. It's the beauty of, I used to say being tra- trapped in this childlike state, but it's not trapped, it's this freedom because she'll often ask me if the car tire blew out. I'm just going to use a, a wild example. She would ask me, what are you angry for? At least we can sit here and talk while we wait on the tow truck. And I'm like, what? I'm late. And she's like, no, you're not late. You'll get there when you get there. So she (laughs) she doesn't see, um, she doesn't see anything as half empty. And so that's good to know you always have somebody who's depending on you, but she doesn't become the weight. There's not one day of life that she's heavy. I know every morning, no matter what I have to do, I still need to prepare her meals and help her clothes and those pieces, she still will never be heavy, ever. She's not heavy. There are things in life that are heavy. She's not one. She's not one. That is beautiful. Well, honey, you've done so much. You've created the Distinguished Gentleman of Spoken Word, Elegant Ladies of Poetic, Kind-Sized Poets. I want to know a little bit about how to use poetry during this pandemic and how has the pandemic kind of shaped your writing or, or what you do with poetry right now? I don't know that I've written as much as I would have liked to during this season. When the pandemic hit, it became about how do I keep all of those around me writing, (laughs) I guess, and happy? How do I keep them engaged, particularly young people and families, because people are isolated and people are depressed and economics has changed for so many people. So until a lot of racial unrest happened in the country, and then I was writing because I was angry. I was just writing to write. I just had to get it out. And then I could give those pieces out. It was more journaling. But I think it was about immediately, how do I create these virtual platforms for others to come in and feel free to write? And we were doing just that at 70 people in one virtual classroom sitting, trying to just write it out. And so the beauty wasn't about me. It was about how do I give this to others? I love that. You know, and I went to your website, poethoney.com, and you have a beautiful reading, A Nation in Shock. And uh, you have clips of the murder of George Floyd. And there's a line that was so powerful. You said, how can you stand before God when you knelt on a man? You took something so gigantic and shrink it into these powerful just this powerful question. And I wonder when something like that happens in your world, for you as a black woman to see that, do you instantly just go to writing or do you have to like have some other process that goes on first before you can actually put 
your hands to paper. No, you just, you have to write like you have to breathe, especially when these things happen that you can't control. Part of the lines of that, that poem or one of the, I think it's Revolutionary Voice, one of the lines talk about you can't reach through the TV screen. So it was this trauma that I think we're all ingesting right now, all of us, when you see death and destruction constantly on the screen. I can't reach through my computer screen. I, I can't stop this, this violence. Nothing you can do when you're watching. In that, that particular case, you are literally watching someone take their last breath. And you want to reach through this screen and say, get off of him. And you can't. So what do you do with that type of trauma? Like, did we just watch death? Did I just watch that? So of course I have to write it so that I don't ingest it so heavy, you know, make you almost sick ingesting that type of trauma. Well, when I watched it on your website, again, I saw the other officer just standing there and I almost yelled, do something. And it's like, oh, it's over. I think that was such a turning point to really see a live murder and have it so casual. And and I love though that you took your poetry and kind of wrapped it around that whole thing in a way that was powerful, but also the tenderness of life. is You capture so many, I guess, different emotions all at once. How do you actually, like, I'd love to see the poem, the sheet that you're writing on. Do you throw a lot out or does it all stay? Like, how do you decide what goes in and what doesn't go in your poem? No, I don't throw anything out. It's just a journal entry. So I just write it. The journal is just literally a journal entry. And I probably have 40, 40 composition notebooks and journals I've just written over the years that I'm now going to put together in a book of some sort, but I've just, just write it, just let it all, let it all go. And it generally, it's just how it comes out in that journal entry. So honey, what is the best writing tip for those of us who maybe haven't discovered that there's a poet inside of us? What, what's the way to get started? So just free yourself. And if you can think of a writing prompt, how I've been helping people during the pandemic I've had to give people a list of writing prompts. And usually if you take a person back to that prompt, they're like, oh, I remember that. And so if I ask you, think back to the happiest day of your childhood and just write a paragraph on it. Most times people are saying, I can't write a paragraph. I need to write a whole page. Think back to the day that broke your heart. Can you write about that? And that's that's hard. That's hard emotional work to go down those pages. So typically I would tell people to free their space, free their mind, and don't think about trying to um, write with some form or fashion, like you're writing a paper. Uh, this is not a paper. Don't think about being grammatically correct. Don't think about spelling, just write, just get it out. And then I'll help you formulate it at the end. Well, I heard somebody say once, separate writing from editing. When you write, you just write. Get the editor out of your head, the inner critic. Don't let them drive the bus, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, honey, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us the best way to connect with you on your website and any kind of social media that you might have. Um, The website is poethoney.com and social media, Facebook primarily is Honey Bell Bay on Facebook. Okay, and I'll have links to those on my website uh, at reginabrett.com. My biggest takeaway today, honey, really is to really look at how much of my life I'm squandering by television, movies, sports, things that if we're counting hours of life, we're actually giving those away and is it worth it to to make that trade-off? So thank you for that. I want to close with your answer to this question. 
Honey, what is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? Hmm. The best thing I do every day probably would still be writing because it's my authentic truth. It is me stepping. I'm not trying to play a saxophone. I'm not trying, which I do do that, but I'm not trying to play a piano. I'm not trying to be something other than me. I am authentically every day tapping into what brings me freedom and what brings me joy. And it's authentic because it's what I know I was put on earth that I have to do. That's right. I try to do it every day. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And I hope you keep writing because the world needs it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.